0: Welcome back to the Conduct Detrimental podcast. Uh, after a string of we did what Dan five and seven we, days or something we went to, we went we, on a binge.
1: Uh, yeah, we were embedded in New Orleans, Louisiana, <laughs> interviewing the triumvirate of Gabe Feldman, Ian Gunn, and uh, Warren Zola. So I think it's time to come to, time to go back to Georgia. Yeah. Uh, our first appearance uh, in the state of Georgia. Actually, we we don't travel anywhere. I'm in my office. Dan is in his uh, apartment, but we have a, a our first Georgia-based resident today. So the New Orleans streak and the Tulane streak is at an end for now.
0: Yeah, and uh, with that, we'd like to welcome uh, Professor Nathaniel Groh to the podcast. Professor at UGA, uh, Nathaniel, how's it going? So I'm going.
2: Uh, I'm doing well. How are you guys doing?
1: Uh, we're doing great. I mean, I tried to go through a list of some of your, uh, you know, some of your accomplishments. I'm on page three. Uh, you are the legal analyst, I'll try to keep it short, but you're the legal analyst for Fangraphs, uh, and you've written a book on baseball called Baseball on Trial, The Origin of the, of Baseball's Antitrust Exemption, and you've also written 14 scholarly, uh, scholarly articles. you focused your, uh, your scholarship mainly, uh, on baseball, and how how did you, how did you come to, you know, develop a passion for the intersection of law and baseball?
2: Yeah, so, um... You know, I grew up a baseball fan. That was kind of the main sport I watched growing up and everything. And um, it was actually kind of the intersection of it. I'd always known I wanted to go to law school. And when I was an undergrad, I had to do a senior thesis. And so right around then, it was right, just a year or two after the Kurt Flood Act had been passed by Congress. And so that was still a little bit fresh of, you know, the antitrust exemption, repealing that partially. And I, it worked out that I could write my thesis on that, and I found that to be really exciting and cool, and just kind of carried over after that.
0: You know, you're going to be a lawyer when you find antitrust exemptions exciting, right? I know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> at, least a a prof- at least a law professor. At least a
1: law professor. You know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know about a practicing lawyer. I've yet to I've yet to encounter my first Sherman Act case in the commercial litigation department of Becker and Polyakov. So it's kind of a higher uh, calling, and um, probably something that most practitioners outside of a small coterie uh, deal with on a, on a day to day basis.
0: And
2: most try to avoid it if at all possible.
0: <laughs> uh, well, Nathaniel's been kind of the man of the week. I think he's uh, wrote an article what this week or a week ago maybe for fan that is a early candidate for sports law story of the year in 2017. It really blew up. He's been all over the place. I've seen him quoted on, on, you know, deadspin ESPN, uh, really all over the place. He was on, uh, the ringer MLB podcast yesterday, sort of a, a little small podcast compared to ours, of course. Um, but the article touched on a relatively unknown law in California that could impact the free agency of several California baseball players and it focused on Los Angeles or yeah Angels outfielder Mike Trout. Nathaniel, um, you want to just give us a background of what the law is and, and how it could apply?
2: Yeah, sure. So the laws California labor law, or labor code section twenty eight fifty five, which is the basically what's known more colloquially, is the seven-year limit to personal services contracts. And so, dating back to the 1870s, sometime back there, California's had this public policy and this law that says, we don't want employment contracts to last more than seven years. We want all employees to have an opportunity to test the market at least once every seven years, and it's never really come up definitively, at least in a litigation context, in the sports context, but it's come up a lot in... Um, there's a big driver in the film industry, like back in the forties, there's a studio system where like the studios just controlled, you know, Gregory Peck for his entire career pretty much. And the actors eventually used that law to kind of strike that down and give us the system we're more familiar with today. And so I've taught it a little bit back in um in an entertainment law context, and but nobody'd really looked at it too much in the sports context. So I thought it was an interesting wrinkle of how does that law that you know, would seem to guarantee everybody free agency every seven years. How does that intersect with CBAs where we come accustomed to and the limits and the team control, you know, the control that CBAs give teams over their players?
1: yeah i mean i I've looked into the history of section twenty eight fifty five of the California labor code, and I was amazed that it was it 's been utilized successfully by very well known uh athletes and entertainers in fact it 's known as the de Havilland law named after Olivia de Havilland who used it to break free of her you know restrictions in the movie studio contract back in the 1940s. you know she 's still alive she 's a hundred years old she's Is she 's still alive really? i swear i, I look that. According to Wikipedia, Olivia Haviland still walks this earth. So send
0: her your article. She'd probably (laughs) like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was was being used by uh, Oscar De La Hoya, Uh, Johnny Carson used it as leverage to negotiate a better deal with NBC. Why hasn't it been used by professional athletes?
2: Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. And I still don't have a firm grasp on it. I I mentioned in the piece that I did come across a reference, I don't know how accurate it is that Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale had threatened to use it back in the 60s when they were holding out free free agency, trying to get more money out of the Dodgers. But, you know, I think part of it, especially at least in the baseball context, is it's kind of hard to think of who the right test case is, right? So, it has to be somebody who's been with a California team for seven years. That eliminates a lot of players right there. And then there's enough litigation risk and uncertainty that you're probably looking at a couple of years and lots of money, you know, to go down that path. So it has to be somebody who's the payoff's going to be worth it. They've got enough time left on their contract and they're willing to take on that, you know, potential unpopularity. And I think So I think the best answer I've been able to come up with is that just the right person in the right situation probably hasn't, you know, come hasn't come up yet.
1: Isn't isn't I'm I'm sorry, Dan, but isn't Mike Trout the ideal situation? You're talking about uh, a variance of between what he earns currently which is you know in the neighborhood of you know mid-twenties to high twenties to potentially uh... he'll be he'll be baseball's first half a billion dollar athlete so uh, the amount in play for him potentially uh... is is in the hundreds of millions wouldn't he or the Players Association be willing to fund such a lawsuit? I mean, he could play during the pendency of the case. Uh, the fact that there's three years, four years of litigation doesn't affect his ability to step up to the plate and just be Mike Trout every day while the case goes on.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I th- if, if I were him, I would definitely consider it. Um, from what I understand about him, um, he's kind of a – He's not a rock. He's not the rock the boat type personality as much. I don't think because I could kind of, you know, I mean, part of it, I think it it was like his extent. So he signed a contract extension back in 2014. That was a pretty controversial contract extension because his agent, you know, thought it was a good deal. But he left a lot of money on the table. He gave away at least two years of free agency where he could have hit the market a lot earlier and made a ton of money. So he seems to be the type of guy who kind of values the relationship he has with the team who values the stability that they gave him with the $150 million extension, which none of us can really sneeze at. Right. So I think I, I agree with you kind of on the merits of it, whether he personality, I think camp with him, it's the personality issue. that He doesn't seem like the type who wants to take that type of stance uh, legally, but I guess we'll find out if he changes his mind.
0: How does the, that- fact that it was a contract extension play into the seven years. I mean, is it even definitive that he would be eligible into this law or would it just get kicked back right away because they're saying, well, this is a four year contract, not a seven year, seven plus
2: year. Yeah. So the delahoya Hoya case that the that Dan Wallach mentioned was um a case where he had, I believe if I remember right, it was a management contract that had extended well, his time with the management agency had extended for more than seven years. And part of that was consumed by an extension that he'd signed that had not yet expired. And there the court said, it doesn't matter that you voluntarily sign this extension. You get this free agency. Basically, you get the chance to be free every seven years. So if a court in a Mike Trout case agreed with that interpretation and it doesn't matter that he signed that extension, he's been there for seven plus years. He has the right to opt out. There is. I didn't mention it in a piece. I know that there was at least one California case back in the 80s, if I remember the date right, that did rule the other way on that extension issue. So it, it, that would be one of the big questions, is how would a court come down on doing that extension? Does that reset the seven-year clock, so to speak, or does it not affect the uh, the time period?
0: And then just like procedurally, how would it look? I mean, would Mike Trout just come out and announce that he's no longer under contract and he's accepting free agent offers. And then the angels would have to come in and sue him to enforce his existing contract. I I mean, I'm just trying to piece through my head how a lawsuit would play
2: out. Yeah. You guys are better litigators than I am. So I'll defer to you a little bit on the strategy on that. I mean, I would think the safer route would probably be to do a declaratory judgment action. If I was him, just to to try to get the right forum and venue and all that and potentially, but you know, with him, the other thing is he there would be a diversity jurisdiction with him because I believe he still resides in New Jersey or the Philly area. You know, maybe he moves to California and sets up shop there and then he can stay in the California state courts. There could be some legal wrangling in terms of jurisdiction and all that. But I would probably say you do the declaratory judgment action, but maybe not.
1: He'd probably want to stay out of Anaheim County uh, to file such a suit. Would it, would it be a matter that uh, he has to arbitrate first, or do you think he could go straight uh, to a judicial forum? I mean, he, you know, he could file suit wherever uh, the Angels do business or even wherever Major League Baseball does business. But then again, that might bring in some federal issues. Uh, which forum would he be required to, to, to pursue first? Is this arbitrable?
2: That's a really good question. I don't I should have looked up the CBA again to refresh my le- recollection. I know that typically contract disputes in terms of the language of the contract and like mm-hmm. how that interacts with the CBA would be arbitrate would be mandatory arbitration. But this is almost kind of like that weird pseudo like yeah. it's not really covered by the CBA. So I don't know. I think that you probably would have an argument both ways on does it have to go to arbitration or not? Yeah, that would probably be a
0: contested issue, I would imagine. And I bet they would maybe a fight over that, a race to the court, you know, MLB moving to compel arbitration.
2: We've seen it all before in these lawsuits, right? Exactly. And I, I mean I guess you'd even have to I mean, I haven't thought it through to that level, but you'd even have to think is arbitration better for him? Or not in terms of shortening the timetable and the legal costs, you know, there might be some advantages if he's funding all this out of pocket. But I don't know if the arbitra. I mean, if I'm him, I probably would rather be in California state court, given how they've interpreted the law. But theoretically, there's a lot of strategic, you know, gaming that could go into that, I would think. But you guys would you guys would probably have better thoughts on how to proceed in that regard than I would.
1: No, not necessarily. <laughs> this is, uh, we, we are in uncharted territory here and we're just, I don't know, spitballing all what a hypothetical lawsuit could look like. Now, if I'm Major League Baseball or if I'm the Angels, um, I'm arguing that uh, the CBA overrides California labor law and that there's some kind of federal preemption um, here. How would, would that kind of argument succeed and what would the argument be?
2: Yeah, I think that that would be the total that that to me is the biggest question mark in all this is how that as far as I can tell, it's definitely a question of first impression. Right. Is how I don't even I couldn't find in terms of period, you know, a unionized employee who is governed by a CBA using this law at all, let alone in the sports context and, um, you know, federal labor Preemption isn't my area of expertise, but I know that, you know, in general, just because there's a CBA doesn't mean that all state law goes out the window, right? Like my union can't waive my rights to minimum wage and stuff. So there is some deference to the state law there. And then you also, the other kind of interesting wrinkle is that back in 2007, I remember the year, right? The California legislature thought about doing a, an amendment to Section 2855, this law to specifically prohibit professional athletes from using it. And so arguably that suggests that the legislature does think that they're bound by it current or does it, that it does apply to them currently. And I guess, I don't know if that overrides the preemption concern, but it definitely kind of would be, you know, in, in the discussion I think as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, that, that would sort of be ind- indicative of, of some kind of uh, legislative intent, but, you know, perhaps the real reason that uh, <clears throat> You know, Mike Trout isn't bringing a lawsuit like this. Is he doesn't want to antagonize a fan base. And imagine if he brought a lawsuit like that. Um, You you know, it it would it would really overshadow. I mean, his performance is is Ruthian. I don't know if anything could ever overshadow his performance. Uh, But by the same token, his deal looks so dramatically under market. In light of the paydays that are being handed out today, that if Mike Trout went on to the free agent market, um, he, I don't think there'd be a ceiling. If they're talking about Bryce Harper as a fifty million dollar a year player, then then what is Mike Trout? You're talking you're talking about the Yankees who would basically write a blank check if they were ever in a position to to acquire uh, Mike Trout for nothing.
2: Yeah, I think that that would be it. Would just be fascinating to watch that bidding war, with the Yankees. The Phillies view him as kind of the hometown player, too, and they've got a ton of money right now that they could probably spend. The Cubs, you know, he's exactly Theo Epstein's type of play. I mean, the every big market would be in on him. The big, and you, I don't know where it would stop. And
1: the, and the top two expert witnesses would be Nathaniel Groh and Olivia de Havilland, uh, you know, <laughs> all, you know provided, provided the suit is brought, you know, quickly enough. <laughs>
0: Nathaniel, would you uh... – so one interesting aspect of this I thought was Deadspin called Scott Boris and they asked him what he thought about your article basically, which is, which is pretty cool. Um and he he said that well, you know it's something that's out there but he doesn't think it would happen and his quotes were that Trout doesn't want to be a pariah. And then he also made the argument that this case could go on for a while and could go to the Supreme Court. I mean, what was when you read that, what was your reaction? So
2: I, I respect Scott Morris a lot I, for my money. He's the best agent in sports right now and maybe ever, you know, so I thought it was a I was happy. He didn't say I was a complete moron, right? So that was always good to, <laughs> to have that not, you know, that be totally ridiculed there. Um, B, I thought that if he's worried about the player becoming a pariah, I think that says something because he's definitely been one who's willing to push the rules and not really worry too much about PR not, not that he doesn't worry about it, but he's wanting to push the envelope when it comes to, you know, asserting contractual rights. The one thing I kind of disagree, I don't disagree with them, but the one thing I, I wasn't sure I bought in 100 percent was the, the number of years he thought it would take. Agreed. It seems like yeah. this is the type of case you could move through the system pretty quickly. It's it's there is no question of fact. It's all law. Yeah. And the timing would that def- I would think it would satisfy most, you know, standards for expedited hearing on appeal especially. So I would think you could get it through in quicker than four years, like you thought.
1: Yeah, I mean that's the argument that's used uh time and again in in the uh, uh you know for why states shouldn't challenge the federal law banning sports betting oh it's going to take forever no no from I, i've always i've always viewed those disputes and i view the trout dispute as uh living or dying on the resolution of a motion for a preliminary injunction right so uh the, the, i i guess the, the the time frame here the sequencing is you file a complaint for declaratory relief and uh then the player would move for a preliminary injunction and tee that up on a, you know, on a rather expedited basis. And if the court grants his request for, for, for a PI and enjoins Major League Baseball from interfering with his efforts to pursue new employment, uh, he could sign with a new team within a matter of months. Of course, uh, you, know, you you, you kind of have to unscramble the egg if it, if it goes the other way following summary judgment or on appeal, but I don't see this as a multi-year effort necessarily. Right.
0: If for the audience that doesn't completely follow that, filing for, filing for the TRO is something that could happen in a matter of days, maybe weeks at the most, they can get that initial ruling. Initial ruling then could be either appealed, which that's where the, the time comes in, I think, even though it would still be expedited. But I think a complete resolution is something that could easily be had under two years, um, assuming that appeals are sought to their fullest extent. I don't know. What can do you
2: think? They- yeah, I think that the example that I was thinking of, and it didn't involve a TRO or anything, but the, the litigation a couple of years ago between San Jose and Major League Baseball over the A's relocation, I mean, that was filed um, in June 2013, and the court, the Supreme Court had finally re- rejected cert September 2015. Mm-hmm. And so that's a timetable within a California district court. I think this would move at least as quick, if not quicker.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, funny story. We were talking or at least uh, texting uh, before the interview about, you know, I was I was curious how you came across your discovery of the Section 2855 loophole, because it, it's been out there since the 1940s. It has a name, the de Havilland Law. It's been used by other professional athletes and entertainers. Why has it taken it so long uh, to emerge in the context of uh, team sports?
2: Yeah. I. I- Good question. I think you know I, I kind of speculated a little bit that if you don't have a California bard attorney as an agent, you know maybe they're not as familiar with it. But even today, so many of the agents are, or so many of the players are you know represented by CAA or these other goliath you know entertainment and sports agencies. I'm not a again I'm not entirely sure why it hasn't come up. I did see. Um, this doesn't really get to your to your question, but it's kind of an interesting aside is um, when I was researching it, I did find a reference to, a I forget the year, 1982, 1983 article. Magic Johnson signed this insane 25-year, $1 million a year contract back in the early 80s with the Lakers. And somebody from the Lakers, whether it's Jerry Buss or the GM at the press conference acknowledged that, well, of course, Magic could opt out after seven years under the California law. But this shows how strongly we, you know, our commitment is to him and all that stuff. So it's been there's I. my guess is the California front offices or their attorneys might be kind of aware of it. And you never know. Maybe somebody has threatened to do it. And then one of the easiest solutions for a California team would then just be, OK, we're going to trade. you. Can, and can, we, can, can that the
1: player can the player contract the right away in a new standard player contract by including a clause that acknowledges. The existence of this right, and then expressly waiving
2: it—that's a really good question too. And I, that's an area that I don't—I I, don't—and I, I could see arguments both ways. I don't know—I don't know what the answer is to, to be, yeah. you know. But I mean, I, again, I can't sign away my right to minimum wage, right? So, what right. Are the what what rights can you give away under California state law? What can't you? I don't know where this right falls in within that framework. Yeah.
1: I mean, disparity of bargaining, bargaining power, I, I, I think the courts would tend to uh, look at the statute as being for the protection of, of employees and, and would construe the clause maybe against the drafter because of the disparity of bargaining power. I mean, Mike Trout wasn't always Mike Trout. I mean, most of these contracts, minor league contracts and early career contracts assigned when there's absolutely no bargaining power.
0: Literally, is represented by a union. So that kind yeah. of shifts it back the other way a little bit, I think. But who knows?
2: Yeah, I mean, to, I, I see it arguments both ways. I mean, to me, the, the fact that he was drafted by the team and never even had a choice, I mean, like you said, he had no bargaining leverage, literally, period, because his rights were assigned before he'd ever entered the league. And to me, that's one of those other atmospheric factors that I think points in favor of the player a little bit. But the unionization representation, you know, is different. It's a counter argument, I guess. Well,
0: is not only an expert on Mike Trout-related things, he's also uh, up-to-date and one of the top resources on a bunch of other uh, lawsuits and issues involving Major League Baseball. So I guess we want to turn to a few of those now and do a little bit more rapid-fire probably. But uh, you know, one of the ones that's interested me over the last few years has been this minor league uh, baseball minimum wage lawsuit. Do you want to give the audience a little background on that lawsuit and where it's at?
2: Yeah. So back in 2014, um, right? It was 2014. Yeah. Yes. The yes. Uh, um, Garrett Brochus, a former minor league player in the San Francisco Giants organization, who's now a um, class action plaintiffs attorney in San, in uh, St. Louis, he filed <laughs> this class action. Easy to to say. <laughs> how often, does that, how often yeah. does that
1: happen? A major league, a, a professional athlete becomes a class action attorney.
2: I know exactly. <laughs> um, and he files his class action suit in California district court on behalf of it looked like a lot of them were not if not former teammates. Like he had played at Missouri and so there's a lot of former Mizzou guys or guys who have been connected with in the minors and they sue Major League Baseball and his 30 teams, saying that the standard minor league salaries violate the Fair Labor Standards Act, that basically when you total up all the bus trips. You know, early practice, all the stuff that major, that minor league baseball players do. And you divide all those hours into the annual salary, which can be as low as $3,300, that you get something, you know, woefully short of $7.25. So there's no overtime. And so that it was kind of, again, kind of like the, the section 2855 is kind of one of those things that, yeah, it was probably always out there. But nobody had really thought, or at least been willing, to challenge that, you know, challenge those practices on that ground. So, you know, the suit's been progressing over the last few years. Um, sometime, the dates are starting to run together for me. Whether it's 20, late 2014 or early 2015, the judge dismissed a number of the MLB teams, um, saying that there's no personal jurisdiction in California so now it's down to, I think, 18 or 19 MLB teams named defendants. And then they've been going back and forth on class certification, whether this is something that can be, you know, tried as a class action or whether the differences between the potential plaintiffs are too great to uh, justify class action treatment.
1: Yeah. Nathaniel, is this case about paying athletes, uh, paying minor league players the minimum wage or is it minimum wage and also overtime? Are there both th- elements?
2: Yeah, there's both elements. They've asserted both claims. And so that's, I think, from Major League Baseball's perspective, they're probably almost more worried about the overtime because, you know, Rob Manfred's come out and said, how do you even know what's working and what's not in this situation? And, you know, he's pointed to some hypotheticals. What if I want to come in for early batting practice? Is that work that I'm entitled to overtime for? Or is that, you know, me just doing my thing in my spare time? And so I think that it definitely, to answer your question, sure, it's definitely a minimum wage and overtime case. And I think that the overtime issue lurks for MLB almost as much as the minimum wage does in terms of an area of concern.
0: Yeah, I think that was um, which, the order that I found the most important to this point was when the judge denied certifying the class this past summer. And that was one of her concerns, too, was uh, for those who don't know, if in order to certify a class action, there needs to be commonality of claims. And She said, well, how are we supposed to calculate this? You know, every player is different. Every league is different. There's all these leagues. There's different levels. There's just no commonality. It would just be impossible to do this all in a single lawsuit Um, and ultimately denied class certification, which really um, lowers the liability for the MLB and the remaining teams. Uh, But then she kind of opened the door back up and asked, asked, asked on a motion for reconsideration, which are very rarely considered or granted, um, you know, ask the plaintiffs to define a more narrow class. I mean, can you guys think of any class that would be more narrow than basically everyone who's involved?
1: Well, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think she, the original class uh, was like every player who ever played a minor league baseball within the statute of limitations period. So she tossed that or denied that, but I think she opened the door to a narrower, uh, class that might be based on geography or, uh, you know, might eliminate, uh, you know, winter workouts. I mean, Nathaniel, I'm, I i do not really have a grasp of w- how the class could potentially be certified that, you know, it's still a pending motion, but where is this headed? If it does get certified, what kind of a class are we looking at?
2: I think that if, that the plainest if i'm remembering right it's been a couple of months since i read their brief on it i think what they said was that they limited the geographic scope and so they i think that like a big part of it was they limited it to players in the california league which is a high single a minor league and so i think that that was one way to try to get around because she had expressed some concerns about, well, what if you're on a team that plays one series for one weekend in Vermont? Are you now all of a sudden, am I applying Vermont? You know, minimum wage laws and all that stuff. And I think they tried to cabin it by saying it's all going to be in California. And the one thing I do not remember how they dealt with it, another concern that she had was that the players just are getting paid totally different sums of money. Right. Like Joan Mancada, the guy from the Red Sox, who just got traded to the White Sox, he'd signed for thirty one million dollars he's making well over minimum wage. If you add that bonus in and all that, and how do you deal with that? I forget if they tried to cabin some of those high bonus guys out of it or not. That's the one thing I'm struggling to remember um, is how they dealt with the the bonus issue. But I think that, you know, th- their argument is kind of that that's not a class issue. That's a damages issue. And that all these guys are there. The plaintiffs are trying to frame it as the question in this case is cases are minor league players. Um, do they deserve? Are they qualified for? Do they should they receive minimum wage? Are they eligible for overtime? And then once you get to the damages stage, then you should be worried about who gets the money, and how much. I don't know yeah. if I find that argument totally persuasive or not. But they're trying to say that, that all these differences come later in the process, only after MLB has been found to be in violation of that FLSA.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I want to get back to the uh... threshold issue in the case. I mean, this is not a, a slam dunk case by any means for the plaintiffs. Historically, baseball, ma- minor league baseball, major league baseball have clung to the party line that they are exempt from the requirements of the Fair Labor Standards Act because of a of an exemption. Uh, that I guess I call the Joe Pesci exemption. You know, Goodfellas. You know, Do I Amuse You? The seasonal amusement or recreational establishment exemption. That sounds kind of antiquated, given what we know today about Major League Baseball's year-round business, and the same with minor league baseball. Can you can you um, enlighten us a little bit about what that exemption is and how that uh, impacts uh, minor league and Major League Baseball uh, as defendants?
2: Yeah, so the seasonal exemption, it says that if you're a recreational, a a seasonal amusement or recreational establishment, that you're not bound by the FLSA, either the minimum wage or the overtime provisions. Because sometimes some of the exceptions are just for overtime, but you still get minimum wage. This one's kind of across the board. You're just not covered. If you work for one of those establishments, and then it defines seasonal as either seven months of operation or less, or then there's this weird receipts thing where if half of your year's income doubles or triples the other six months and you're considered seasonal um the big applic question in this case is how does that apply to a professional sports team right and so like you like you mentioned on the one hand these teams have seasons that may be less than seven months especially at the minor league level but on the other hand they really are at some level a year round business how should that be viewed kind of what frame of reference do you use to view the operations and the seasonality of The business, and there's been some precedent from both sides of that. Some courts have said, no, you're a seasonal business. No, you're not covered. This is a seasonal business. You're not bound by the FLSA. And other courts have said, well, we actually think you're a year-round business. You employ a lot of people 12 months a year. So we are going to hold you bound by minimum wage and overtime.
0: Got it. So assuming, I mean, it's probably a big jump to say assuming, but assuming this lawsuit is eventually successful, I mean, what is the impact on the business of baseball?
2: It, that's like one of the big things that's being debated right now is on the one hand, some people say, Oh, it won't really matter that much. MLB is like a $10 billion a year industry. There's plenty of money. Uh, you know, MLB has said that they think that it could have a bigger financial impact. And, you know, Rob Manfred's kind of, the commissioner's kind of threatened that if we lose this case, we'll probably see a decrease in the number of minor league teams. People, you know, go back and forth on how legitimate that, that debate is. I think, from mlb's perspective you know it to me in some ways it almost it's not my money so it's easy for me to say give them more money they deserve more money but in some ways there's some benefits to major league baseball i think right if especially if you've got guys who are trying to decide do i go to college for football or do i go straight into minor league baseball if you are paying them a lot more money especially given the Mm quote-unquote no you know amateurism and ncaa sports right now you might have some type of leverage there to start getting some of these athletes back into professional baseball so to me it's kind of an interesting you know how much do you want to prioritize the bottom line versus the benefit and growth of the game overall it's not good to have guys who are trying to be professional athletes trying to make it on three thousand dollars a year you're just not that's not a way any professional athletes really going to be you know achieving peak performance
0: yeah it's funny you say that there's basically this exact same debate going on with the NBA right now in the new NBA collecting Bargaining agreement, the NBA up to the salaries for their developmental league, their sort of upcoming minor league and the same arguments are being made. Well, you know, high school players can go straight to that league um, instead of going to the NCAA where they obviously can't get paid other than the scholarship. Um, and so this lawsuit, I mean, in theory could have a similar impact. Um, you know, I live right now, at least in Augusta, Georgia, I live down the street from the, Augusta Green Jackets, um, single A team, and we go frequently, it's close, and I mean, if there's 50 fans in there a night, it's a big night, so I just, you know, teams like that I could just really see being impacted, because if they're not getting floated somehow, I just don't know where the money's coming from.
2: Yeah, I think that the way the, the business structure kind of works, I think the, the biggest concern for the minor league system, minor league teams is just, yeah, MLB plays, pays all these players contracts. Like the minor, like the Augusta team is not paying its players their salary, but in any negotiation, you know, the amount that MLB helps subsidize their other operations, their coaching staffs or the food or the travel and all that stuff, if their labor costs go up, those subsidies are going to go down. I, I personally, I do think that there you probably would see some shrinkage of the minor leagues. It's not clear that you need so many leagues, and so many teams, and so many levels. My guess is it would shrink somewhat, but then overall the effect wouldn't be as great as MLB seems to suggest. Yeah,
1: Nathaniel, how do, how do you think the uh, court will come out on this seasonal amusement or recreational establishment exemption? You, you pointed out earlier that there there have been. Uh, conflicting decisions uh, in other federal circuit courts. But by the way, which begs the question, why didn't these plaintiffs file a lawsuit in one of those other circuit courts where that exemption was struck down? So that's one question. How would it play out potentially in the Northern District of California and then uh, subsequently before the Ninth Circuit? And and is this case, is this kind of case one that could go to the Supreme Court?
2: Um. Yet, potentially, yes. I think that you you do have a circuit split there. Right. So, you know, you have that going for it in terms of going, you know, the legs to go all the way up to the the Supreme Court. I I think when I have looked at it and thought about it, like the beauty of this issue or the, you know, the the maybe not the beauty of it. But the the thing about this issue is it's really what's in the eye of the beholder. Right. And so if the judge is inclined to say, you know, screw Major League Baseball, this 10 billion dollar industry, they should be paying these players more. Then she's going to be and have all sorts of grounds say, nope, you're a year round business. I'm going to find that you are bound by the minimum wage. If she's more inclined to say, eh, you know, I kind of support Major League Baseball's view here. It's going to be easy for her to to create a ruling that, you know, is justifiable on why it is a seasonal business. And so my guess, I don't know the judges, you know, ideology and history that well enough to guess. But my guess is, at least at the Ninth Circuit, yeah. They're probably going to favor the labor, I think here, and not management is would be my intuition. But again, you know, it's one of those things you could go either way with it, depending on how you you know what side of the bed you wake up on. I guess there's there's justifiable grounds on either side.
1: Yeah, whose receipts matter for purposes of the um, uh, for the exemption? You mentioned that there are two alternative methodologies for determining whether a team or, or whether an employer is a seasonal amusement or recreational establishment. One, there's the seven month threshold and you know I think in the case of baseball we can make a strong case that it's a year-round business but on the other uh, aspect of the test the receipt the gross receipts is it been clearly established that baseball satisfies the gross receipts test or it's or it's a giant unknown at this point
2: yeah it's it's an unknown and it and also from what my and I'm not an FLsa expert from but According to the FLSA experts I've talked to, there's also this huge issue of how do you define what the quote-unquote establishment is that is referred to in the statute? Oh. Because you could say, well, is the is the establishment Major League Baseball? Is the umbrella organization? Is the establishment the san francisco giants and the new york yankees and all the individual major league franchises or do you go down and boil it down to the minor league level and say that no the actual establishment is each minor league team is its own establishment under the flsa my understanding is is it usually courts narrow the establishment pretty small but again you know there's enough wiggle room there the judge could probably go whatever way but potentially it's what are the receipts of the what was it? The Augusta yellow jacket, whatever the green jackets, for green jackets. The you know, what are, what are the Augusta? Uh, I get it. Now. What are the Augusta green jackets re, receipts and how do they compare, you know, from a time temporal perspective? You could get down to each individual minor with franchise, which would be a, a bear to work through in a decision. Sa- yeah. Sounds
1: like law review article number 16 for you. <laughs>
2: Uh, moving along, one case
0: that um, yeah, I personally, before we started researching this podcast, thought was actually over with, was the it's the the Chris, Cubs Chris Bryant's grievance. I I thought it had been settled. Obviously, this happened now two seasons ago. Um, for those who don't remember, um, Bryant was in the minors, um, Cubs artificially. He was minor league baseball player of the year. Tore up spring training, and the Cubs didn't call up until a few weeks into the season because. Um, if they did if they waited, they could maintain his rights for an extra year. Um, he filed a grievance, and that 's been pending i mean why is this still pending? Is there any indication of when a decision will come or
2: what 's holding it up yeah Dan Wallach and I were chatting off that about that offline i don't i don 't know it 's possible that there has been a decision and it 's just confidential and that nobody 's either asked about it or been willing to talk about it it 's possible it hasn 't been decided yet i my understanding of the time frame under the CBA is that usually that hearing should have been held within approximately a year, year and a half max after the grievance was filed. So you'd think by now that that case should have been heard and decided, but I it's, it's, uh, the last story I even saw referencing, it came almost a year ago, I think when I did a Google search for it. So it doesn't seem like there's been any real word or leaks on it for a while. So maybe maybe it's settled secretly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, you know, there's a lot of possibilities. But I, I agree, it's a little. You'd think that that would be a high profile enough case that some word would have gotten out by now.
1: Sounds like an investigative job for the White Bronco. There you um, go. Yeah, <laughs> what's at stake for the player if he wins?
2: If Chris Bryant wins, I assuming that the grievance was filed the way I kind of would assume it would have been, he would have he'd be in line for extra service time which would then get him to free agency sooner. And so under the major league rules, we usually think about it as you have to have six years of service, but the teams can manipulate it such that if they call up a player like Chris Bryant late enough, then he, they extend their control over him basically for a seventh year. And so here the question would really be, does he become a free agent after 2020 when he should have been, if he'd been promoted right away, or does, does the, do the Cubs have his rights until 2021?
0: Was this rule one that was addressed in the CBA negotiations, to your knowledge? I mean, is this something that we're we're still going to be dealing with moving forward? I
2: believe the answer to that is no. It was not addressed, and yes, we will likely be continuing to deal with it moving forward. It all comes down to you know where you draw the line in terms of how many day, how many years, and how many days. And I think I haven't I haven't tried to really brainstorm a perfect solution, but it seems like one of those. It's always going to be a line somewhere, and then it's just a question of where do you draw the line kind of game one way or another.
0: You'd think that uh, MLB players um, would want to push back much harder on these control rules because, I mean, you look at – what's the timeline for how long a team can control a player after they draft them? Isn't it almost 10 years or something? I, I'm...
2: So they get them potentially in the minors for seven, and then after that – so like the longest would be yeah. I spent seven years in the minors right before I'm a minor league free agent my contract gets purchased i'm a major league player and then they get
1: me six more years so so yeah. you could go from
2: 13 tra- years you
1: know, drafted out of high school at 17 and not get freedom real freedom until you turn 30
2: yeah potentially i think that that's an unusual case but potentially under the rules that's right. the link so it. i mean
0: but but more reasonably let's say a player spends two to three years in the minors and then they have six years of service it's still eight or nine years For a more average type case. I mean, if you look at other sports, the the typical timeline is more like three or four years after you're drafted. And so I just, it's kind of shocking that there hasn't been more pushback on this from the player side and the the collective bargaining agreement negotiations.
2: I completely agree. Um, especially today, if you really look at the economics of the game, like teams are getting so much smarter about not giving, you know, I mean, like Jose Bautista still doesn't even have a contract offer as far as I, or at least anything he's willing to really negotiate over. So much of the money is moving towards younger players and teams are just. You know, using the leverage they have to sign these early extensions like Mike Trout did and will tie up these players through the real valuable years of their career for below market rates. And it's a problem that the union's going to have to address sooner or later one way or another.
0: Yeah, it's really devaluizing the free agency system in general. I mean, you look at what the White Sox did a few years ago and they tied up Adam Eaton, Chris Sale, Quintana, and now they're getting King's Ransoms back in return, Partially because they're good players, but partially because they're such fantastic contracts that, um, you know, if Chris Sale's in the free agency market, he would make, what, five times what he's making in his contract now? So um, it's a really interesting dynamic. Uh, And I wonder how the lack of a salary cap also plays into that because teams will artificially pay free agents more, making those controlled players even more valuable.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, I, you know... I think ML, to MLB's defense, they would say, but we also do a lot more training than any other league. Maybe hockey, you know. But other than that, the college, you know, the NBA and the NFL are outsourcing all their real training to high school, you know, to high school talent to the colleges, and you know, MLB's investing in them. And mm-hmm. so they'd say that entitles us to more control. But you know, it seems pretty. Like, I agree with the with that take on it.
1: Yeah, Nathaniel, you raised the, uh, um, or maybe it was Dan that raised the Batista uh, example. Oh, uh, has the new collective bargaining agreement done away with this notion of attaching a draft pick, a mandatory first-round draft pick as compensation when the team that you know, has the player makes a tender? And it, and it has the result of depressing the market for players who would be earning considerably more if the prospective new employer didn't have to part with a valuable first-round draft pick. Is that uh, system of compensation part of the new CBA?
2: Yes, but it's been changed a lot in a way that I think the player's view is significantly beneficial to them. It reduces the. It gets con. It gets complicated in terms of, are like how much money you make and how much money the franchise makes and stuff. But potentially, and how much they spend on players' salaries. But potentially, it's now a second or third round draft pick, or third or fourth round draft pick, rather than a first round draft pick. And the other big thing is you can only be um, given a qualifying offer that entitles your team to this compensation one time. Whereas currently, every year, you know, like. Um, uh, the outfielder, the, the Nats shortstop who went to Texas and became the outfielder. Ian Desmond? Or, yeah, Ian Desmond, thank you. Um, Ian Desmond got two qualifying offers, so he was hit with all this compensa- draft pick compensation two straight years on the market. You know, Jose Bautista could sign a one-year deal and then he's totally free to that next year under the new CPAC.
1: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I, I mean, the, the major league players can collectively bargain uh, the, for the for terms of their employment and their and their wage compensation, but the minor league players don't have a union, uh, and potentially they're tied up for up to thirteen years, as you pointed out earlier. Has there ever been an antitrust challenge waged by minor league baseball players? And could you conceive of something like that happening? Uh, you know, just to to, to alter uh some of these. Overly, you know, unduly onerous, restrictive rules that that really, uh, you know, there's there's no bargaining unit to represent minor league baseball players.
2: Yes, it really good question, and it raises a bunch of different issues. You know, like one thing that's really not not to totally get sidetracked right away. One thing that's really interesting to me in this area, and I've never been able to get a really good firm grasp on why this is the case. MLB's players union, the MLBPA, negotiates away the draft rights of. Incoming players, even though they're contractually prohibited from joining the union. So it's like this weird thing where the MLBPA kind of wants to be able to give away the rights. Even further than like a Claret situation where the NFL draft pick immediately going to join the union. These players, when they get drafted by an MLB team, they can't sign a major league contract. And they're not allowed to join the union for at least a couple of years. And so it's like this weird, like they're really pushing the envelope on that Claret kind of you know, logic of how many of these early rights can we give away of our prospective players. Turning to the antitrust part of it, though, there have been some cases. One of the cases that went up to the Supreme Court back in the 50s dealing with Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption, the Toulson case that involved a minor ligger challenging, you know, the years of control and whatnot. There was, it's totally got buried and lost for understandable reasons with the minor league wage the free, the minimum wage case we already talked about but there was a Case filed in California around the same time dealing with an antitrust claim saying that MLB's minor league pay practices violate the Sherman Act um, I don't believe that got as much into the years of control part of it as it was just kind of the standard pay scale that case was dismissed pretty quickly by the district court given baseball's antitrust exemption and is now pending a ninth circuit appeal. And it's surprisingly the ninth circuit indicated they were interested in holding an oral argument. Um, I kind of would have guessed they would have just dismissed it on the briefs. But so maybe there is some hope for minor league players on that front coming down the road here in 2017.
0: Yeah. So we've, we've touched on uh, the new CBA and a few, and a few of these issues, but uh, I know you followed that negotiation closely. I mean, what, to you, like, what is the most important change moving into this new CBA era?
2: Um, oh, that's a good question. I was going to say the most, my biggest takeaway was how little changed. So to kind of you know, do the reverse, yep. like, in terms of the finances, it, it really seemed like kind of a status quo type. Why do you think but, that
0: was? Just because the business was good and we're just going to push I on?
2: Yeah. I don't know if the players had the stomach to go into a work stoppage type situation is my kind of external reading between the lines. Like Tony Clark had been kind of rattling his sabers a little bit and the players had been dragging their feet allegedly. And then all of a sudden, they, I don't want to say they caved, but they quickly reached an agreement. And, um, you know, it, if you look at it from a financial perspective, the luxury tax ceiling hardly goes up at all compared to how much the revenues changed over the last 10 or 15 years. You know, it's a really good deal for the owners financially, the players. I think they're big things that they take away from a fan's perspective. At least the big thing out of the CBA is that the all-star game no longer determines home field <laughs> right. advantage in the world series. Um, that
1: That's just, a win for the players.
2: Well, for <laughs> the fans, potentially okay. that'll be a takeaway for the fans. Okay. Uh, I think the players surprisingly actually cared about that. like, To me, the players misplaced priorities a little bit. They were much more focused on home field advantage in the World Series. And I don't do 162 games in 183 days, so it's easy for me to say it doesn't matter. But little lifestyle things, they kind of emphasize, you know, having team chefs in every clubhouse, that sort of stuff, over the big picture finances of where the game's headed over the next five years.
1: Yeah, I mean, Nathaniel, what struck me or what shocked me about the, the new CBA with the luxury tax threshold uh, increases were kind of minuscule, uh, and you know, if I'm thinking of the reason for it, it might be uh, to discourage you know teams like the Yankees or the Dodgers from building a super team in 2018 when all those great players like you know Machado and Harper and at the time you know Jose, Jose Fernandez were earmarked for free agency. Can you discuss what some of the motive? I, I mean, we know what the motivation is, but the 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 gradual increases were so. Small and incremental, that as you pointed out, I don't think they keep pace with the growth of the game.
2: Yeah, it's, I would love to know what Tony Clark is thinking in terms of if he thinks this is a good deal or if it was one of those where this is, he realizes it's not a good deal, but this was the best he felt he could get, you know, because his public persona is going to be, oh, this is a good deal for the players. Yeah. I, I looked at it a little bit. And if you go back to the original luxury tax back in 2002, it was set at something like, 60 or 70 percent of like the average team's revenue. And now it's much lower than that. And it's it's getting to the point where the Yankees are not spending because they're worried about the luxury tax. And I don't think that that was ever what Donald Peer intended back in 2002. But then you have him step down and Michael Wiener take over. And then after his untimely passing, Tony Clark and those new leaders just seem to be much more about let's maintain labor peace and let's not rock the boat rather than really saying, Hey, we've kind of getting screwed here a little bit. And we need to, you know, go to the mat to fight this. Yeah.
0: Well, it's interesting. I feel like what really creates labor war is when this peace kind of continues, but you don't address the issues as you're going, and then it finally bubbles to a head at some point. I mean, is it, is that you think this is the type of agreement since they just kind of, pushed push past these issues and didn't address them i mean could really bubble up and create a lot of tension over the term of this agreement
2: if not during the term then by 2021 i would think that you're gonna have a more difficult negotiation but then again it seems like everybody's happy right every it's kind of like everybody's getting theirs and yeah the owners are making 10 billion dollars a year but the players are making a ton of money too and so you know, again, it's easy for me as an outsider to say, Oh, you guys should be fighting harder right, and right. You know, give up all this stuff when they're making five hundred thousand dollars minimum salary and you know, everything's pretty rosy. So it's all a matter of perspective. And if the players keep just saying, Hey, we're getting our we're getting enough of ours now, why take a chance, why risk it? Then maybe you just keep seeing this go on forever. But at some point you'd think the play enough players are gonna say, Wait a second, this doesn't seem to be making sense. Why are the owners making so much more money than us, you know, than they have historically? you
0: know at some point you think somebody's going to put their foot down yeah and uh, you know major league players have the best system you know without a salary cap obviously the control issue which we talked about earlier sort of limits their earnings but at the same time when they're looking in the mirror and comparing themselves to NBA or NFL uh you know guaranteed contracts they have they make the most money out of all of them so um, it's hard to argue that they're happy with the way it is. And, and as fans, that's good. You know, we don't, I think this will be what, 26 years with labor peace when this one expires. Is that right? I think I read that. Yeah. Um, and I remember back, uh, I'm a white Sox fan. I remember back in, I think 1994, was that the strike year? yeah. and the white Sox, I mean, they were going to win it this year. Let's face it guys, that year, let's face it guys. So that was, that hurt, you know? And I think, hopefully uh, baseball learned a lesson from that.
2: Um, so. I mean, I think that I think that, you know, there's like kind of these two like it's really popular to say that the MLBPA is the strongest union in sports, if not overall. And, and did, like for all the reasons you just listed, there's totally truth to that. But I think that sometimes the players might be losing sight of the fact that that even if that's true, like you don't have a Billy Hunter type situation, in the MLBPA and they're not getting worked over like the NFL players. Doesn't mean they're not getting worked over a little bit, and I think that you know how you know when they're going to kind of come to their senses on the finances, how they're getting taken to the cleaners a little bit over these last few deals. That's kind of the more, in- you know, for me, that's the long-term interesting thing: is do they just keep going along with it or not? Yeah. But for fans, it's a good thing, right? That fans don't care about lockouts. The average fan doesn't care about lockouts, strikes, and they don't want to hear it. So from that perspective, business keeps going. Yeah.
1: uh, Nathaniel, before, you know, I guess we're getting close to the, you know, uh, near the end of the show. And I, I wanted to touch real briefly with you because you wrote the book on baseball's antitrust exemption. I mean, baseball on trial, the origin of baseball's antitrust exemption. It's been 95 years since the federal baseball versus National League case was decided in which the Supreme Court said baseball, the business of baseball is not interstate commerce. Will this decision and the subsequent precedent, the you know the the flood case and the and the and the the Thule or Toomey case, is this going to be perpetual, or we will will there ever be a time or or a controversy that will tee up baseball's antitrust exemption for consideration by the Supreme Court again?
2: Yeah, and that's again, a really good question. you know I potentially, yes. I think it has to be the right case, though. I think if it's a case that MLB doesn't care enough about to risk it, then they're going to settle, and they've done that several times, and that's part of the reason you haven't seen it go all the way up yet, I think, to the Supreme Court is it has to be, to me, the, the big kind of benefits for baseball from the antitrust exemption. One, it covers all this minor league stuff we've been talking about, and it shields all the pay practices and the years of control and all this stuff that have never been union negotiated. If you see a case go up that challenges that, I don't think MLB is going to settle that case. I think they will that's, the, that's the sword they'll fall on, right? If that exemption is going to go down, they're going to take it to the mat over that. The other possibility being the relocation. And you saw them take that San Jose case all the way up to the Supreme Court, and they won there. Those are the two types of issues I think MLB really gets the most benefit from. So I think if you're going to predict the case that overturns baseball's antitrust exemption, it's going to involve minor league system or the relocation restrictions cuz the other stuff I don't think MLB's going to say the other practices are worth, you know, threatening those that exemption over. We'd settle that case before we take it all the way up to the Supreme Court.
1: Okay, is baseball purely state activity or is it interstate commerce? Isn't this today, a slam
2: dunk? Today it's a slam dunk. Yeah, today is definitely interstate commerce in in the book, I argued that the 1922 decision made sense. Not everybody agrees with that, but that at the time it was a much more defensible logic. Today, that logic does not really stand. So it all comes down to stare decisis. And is the Supreme Court going to overturn, you know, 95 years of precedent or not? You know, and to me, I understand the Supreme Court's concern a little bit. I'm not saying it's a good argument, but if you overturn it, then it's immediate retroactive treble damages on something that you thought was exempt from the law for for 95 years, I understand that concern. And I think some of it, I think, comes up with how those cases came up before. Like the Flood case, if they rule for Curt Flood, every other former player is suing immediately the next day, right? And theoretically, that could bankrupt Major League Baseball. Is that the step you want to take if you're the Supreme Court? One of these other cases, though, that might not have those same retroactive concerns to the same extent, like a relocation case, I could see being a better vehicle for getting that overturned.
0: So we understand you're working on uh, another law review article with uh, an interesting co-author, which is your wife. How do you, uh, how do you like working with your wife?
2: She she did a good job. So it it went pretty smoothly. It's a trade secret piece. And she had been interested in kind of better understanding and looking into non-compete clauses and the law there and non-disclosures and kind of the employment law part of it, which I thought was a valuable piece to this article. And so she said she was willing to knock that out. And I was happy to hand it off. And I think it's um, objectively, i objectively think it's the best piece of the article, but you know, so <laughs> had say I'll that. say that. Yeah, <laughs>
1: Nathaniel, is she is she a law professor, a, a college, a business school professor, a lawyer? Uh, what's her, um, you know, uh, role in the in the profession?
2: Yeah, so she has a JD, and she practiced. She was a government attorney in D.C. for a few years, and then she's been teaching with me at UGA for the last six or seven years on kind of a part time basis so now she's part-time teacher part-time stay-at-home
0: mother nice and so but it's a it does pertain to the sports industry correct you do this just a little background of what the what the total article is about
2: yeah so the 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 concept or the 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 thought process was after the the st louis cardinals houston astros hacking thing a couple years ago i i Got really interested in, well, what are teams doing to protect these proprietary trade secrets? And, you know, analytics is so important today and all these statistical things. How are teams shielding that stuff legally? And I got the idea of sending out a survey. And I contact or we jointly contacted um, the GCs, the general counsels of all the professional sports teams in the four major leagues that we could find email addresses for and send them a survey just saying, hey, what are you guys protecting? You know, just in general statistical analysis, training regimens, dietary stuff, you know, that sort of, you know, general categories. What are you protecting? How are you protecting it? And wasn't sure if I'd hear back from anybody. Thought I'd get some emails. You know, you're a complete idiot. Why are you sending us this? We're never going to tell you this. I only got one of those. Um, But then, you know, enough teams. (laughs) Who was it? (laughs) I'll say it's an NBA team. Okay. Uh, The West West Coast NBA team. I'll leave it at that. Okay. Um, But, you know, we got...
1: is it our next week's guest, Jason Hillman, West Coast? No, I don't, so I—that uh, no. oh, okay.
2: not be it. Yeah. No, I can—I—I I don't even know. If I, I was supposed to guarantee everybody anonymity, so I don't know if I should have even said that. But it was not—it uh, was. I won't—I won't go any further. Okay, that. fair enough. But uh, <laughs> but. um but we got about 19 responses, which, as I noted in the article, it's not enough to be totally statistically robust and, you know, you don't draw any conclusions that because this. 30% of all teams are doing this, but it was enough to kind of shed some light on how teams are, you know, handling this emerging area from a legal perspective.
0: That's really cool. It's definitely, obviously, a, a big topic in the field moving forward, so uh, we'll, yeah. we'll keep it out for that. When is it due to be published?
2: It's going to come out sometime in the fall in the Washington Lee Law Review, um, but I should have a, article, a draft up online probably in the next month or so. Oh, really? okay.
1: yeah. Nathaniel, other than the uh, baseball minor league uh, you know, wage case, uh, do you see any big baseball legal uh, issues emerging in 2017 other than the you know, trade secrets and, and the uh, case law uh, that we just discussed? Is there anything on the horizon that we should be looking out for?
2: Um real good question again. I think there's always a good possibility of some sort of ped type case. you know you never know when the next biogenesis is going to erupt and how that's going to play out. There's always going to be little stuff in terms of grievances when some player you know gets do- or domestic violence too you know those types of issues i I don't think that there's anything that I see big systemic litigation there was already the broadcasting case that got settled last year that kind of that could have been a big issue concussions isn't a big deal in baseball so what about I foul foul ball litigation there is the foul ball case that case just got dismissed though in california yeah. so there's an appeal of that and you could see individual fans suing but on a class action basis i don't know yeah if, if that's gonna after the last case kind of Lost scene yeah. quite quickly. If that's going to take off anymore or not?
0: A quick hitter. Did you see the uh, recently filed Arizona Diamondbacks stadium dispute?
2: I did. And, yes.
0: Yeah. Any thoughts on that one? I mean, it, it sounds like it's a pretty ugly battle between the county, who's funding half the stadium, and the team, who now wants to leave this somewhat new stadium. I guess that maybe that's the wrong phrase, but um, do, it's do pretty s- new. Yeah. I mean, do you see them being able to get out of it anytime soon?
2: Yeah. From from my understanding, it's basically the lease says if it's a fan enjoyment type improvement, that's the Diamondbacks responsibility. But if it's a safety issue, structural issue, it's the counties. And so now they're just quibbling Mm -hmm. over how do you characterize the improvements. Right. And. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, I, I would be surprised. I mean, if you're going into local court, I'm thinking that the local court is probably not going to be super receptive to the Diamondbacks argument here. But, you know, just atmospherically, but I don't know enough to be honest with you about the specific complaints that the team has to really you guys. I know have followed it closely, too. What are your thoughts on it?
1: Uh, it, it just it, to, me, to me, it strikes me as a uh, you know political battle uh, that's probably going to be resolved, uh, but you know by, by way of a settlement. Just threats, and uh, there's a there's, there's just a strong political overtone to this. Um, I, I don't know how it's going to play out, but you know we're seeing it happen with the 49ers and the City of Santa Clara Stadium Authority uh, that there are no new cases, there are just new faces. Uh, So these kinds of battles play out quite often between, you know, professional teams and their uh, local uh, municipal leaders over, you know, terms of a lease or who's, you know, who's doing what. So I I would expect this not to go to a a judicial resolution.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty much on board with that. I mean, I found interesting the comments back and forth. You can tell, uh, you know, there's no love lost between the parties and, you know, in situations like that you just hope that it doesn't yeah. really hurt the fans there uh more than anything because they're you know paying for the stadium at least partially through their tax money and it's kind of i i mean which that's a whole separate issue but it's uh unfortunate that the Arizona Diamondbacks field they need a new stadium after um you know yeah. Chase Field is relatively new so uh well this was great i mean we ended up doing pretty much every MLB legal issue out there <laughs> After starting with just a few, but
2: yeah, we covered it all. Yeah.
0: Wait,
1: we, we just got started. We got more. We got now with we, that yeah. t v
0: Dodgers lawsuit. That's true. You're like, right. Yeah. Edwin and Carnacion getting sued over STDs. I got a whole bunch <laughs> for you. you, know? yeah. you, know, thank you no, thank you so comment much. On that last
2: one, yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. You've been you're so generous with your time. I think we we, we should definitely uh, uh, tell our audience to you know, look, you know follow Professor Grow. His Twitter handle is at. Nathaniel Grow. And uh Professor Grow is also a contributor for Sports Law Blog. Uh, the Twitter handle for that is at Inside Sports Law. Uh but I think the uh web domain is Sports Law Blog spot, uh Professor Grow uh as well as last week's guest, Gabe Feldman, and the week before Warren Zola uh contribute from time to time uh quick hit blog posts on uh sports legal issues. Uh, and, you know, check out his, uh, his, his article uh, that he co-authored with his wife and uh, buy his book, yeah. Baseball on Trial, The Maybe Origin yeah. of, of Baseball's Antitrust Exemption. I promise you I'm going to read that because the, the first time I ever dove into baseball's antitrust exemption was today in preparing for this broadcast. And I found it utterly fascinating. So I'm going to buy your book and uh, we'll try to learn a little bit more about
2: it. Well, I hope you enjoy it, and if if not, if you're ever struggling to fall asleep, that's the other alternative, right? Is you know, it's either going to be interesting or a cure for insomnia, one or the other. You'll get your money's worth out of it, one way, either way. Yeah. yeah. Well-
1: uh, i 'll let you know uh, in a couple of weeks uh, but anyway it was just it was awesome having you on and of course meeting you I know we 've crossed paths a lot and have exchanged uh, if not email certainly Twitter messages and we're kind of colleagues on on sports law blog and it was just really nice to you know finally uh, put a put a voice to the face and just interact uh, you know with you and Dan uh, you know one on one so thanks for being such a sport today and coming on and spending over an hour with us. This was a terrific podcast I learned uh, quite a bit Bit about uh, you know some of the antitrust issues uh, thanks to you and uh, greatly appreciate it
2: hey thanks for having me this was really fun and again uh, right back at you it was good to talk to you guys and uh, chat about some stuff